Oh yeah. What's up? How you doing? I'm stretching. <laughs> this is a good start already, huh? So welcome. My name is John and I was trained as a pastor. This is one of the ways I'm trying to do something good with that. And uh, well, here's, here's something that I've come to realize. I've always been interested in understanding things for myself. However, understanding things hits a wall. And at a certain point, you've got to stop. And instead of constantly trying to understand something, it's best just to bow in wonder. And so a couple of weeks ago, I came up with this clever wording. Um, it's not about understanding. It's about wonderstanding, <laughs> which maybe is a really corny way of saying that I think we all have to understand that wonder is where it's at. And so that's what we're gonna do. Today is about having wonder about the Genesis poem that kickstarts the entire Bible. And uh, this whole series, we're calling this After Deconstruction because I've listened and heard this word used so much and I'm getting, honestly, I'm getting tired of it because I feel as though it's become the cliche, cool thing to just denounce faith. And no, I don't think it's a good idea to do that. I think it's maybe better to level up, you know, your understanding of faith because it's offered so many good things in the past. So maybe we just have to, you know, change the way we think about it just slightly so that it can help us now. So this is called after deconstruction because deconstruction is when you just tear the faith down, or at least that's the, the popular understanding of it. There's an academic meaning to the word deconstruction that's a little closer to um, just digging beneath the surface to find where the real thing is at. And that's an, in, that's, but that's the academic version of deconstruction. This time though, we're going to talk about obviously the Genesis poem, but also just the general view of the world, because a lot of us have been brought up with a particular tradition that, at least in church circles, defines the world through these categories and ways of understanding. And then we go away to college or we go to somewhere else. We do some of our own self-study maybe, and then we have to reconcile. It's like, well, wait, 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 wait. What I just learned completely challenged everything I was taught before. And that's totally fine, but you've got to be careful to always incorporate the best parts of what you're given before and then maybe level up or upgrade the other parts. So in this one, here's what I want to do. We're going to talk about Genesis 1 as mythic poetry. Uh, we're going to redeem the word myth if we can. We're going to talk about uh, ways of reading Genesis. And then towards the end, we're going to talk about how the way you view the universe in, impacts way more than you think. All right. So here we go. Welcome. Let's get this on. So Genesis 1 is, if you read it very carefully, I think it's actually like the lyrics to a song where it repeats seven times and so it kind of reads as though it's seven stanzas as though it is obviously poetry but 
most of us maybe weren't taught that it was poetry. And this might be in part because at the rise of typography, <laughs> at the rise of uh, the printing press and the rise of literacy, there was uh, a, a shift that happened in modern thinking where we probably started to denounce or to overlook poetry and story. And then somewhere around the time of the Renaissance, we became so focused on objective facts and science that we, we kind of lost the magic of artistry. And as a result of that, we did that very same thing to the Bible. We lost some of its poetic artistry because we were trying to read it in an objective way. Whereas maybe faith is actually something between objective and subjective. It's maybe your subjective experience of objective things happening. We can talk about that some other time. But anyways, Genesis 1 is what I would consider uh, what Joseph Campbell calls a grounding myth. And myth is usually not uh, a word that's highly favored in church circles because myth is often associated with fairy tales or something made up. Well, for Joseph Campbell, he wanted to talk about myth in such a way that, listen, myths, especially poetry, sometimes are talking about things so true and so beautiful and so wonderful that we can't help but use poetry to, to describe these things, to use narrative, to use story, to use archetypal language. So if you read Genesis 1, you'll see that there is some massive, massive ideas being communicated. So we have in the beginning, right off the bat, we're talking about the beginning of all things with a capital letter B. Now in Hebrew, that's the the phrase uh, Bereshit, which actually is closer to from the top, more so than in in the beginning. It's more like in the top of things, or at the top of things, or at the at the start of things. Rosh is the Hebrew word for head, so you could say the beginning. This is let's talk about the head of everything. Let's talk about the the top of everything, the start of everything. So already. In the first English three words of the Bible, we're talking about big things that are beyond human language. In the beginning. You're like, oh, man. But then the rest of it goes into, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's break that down. Heavens, Hashemayim, was everything that was above. Earth is the ground beneath us, Eretz. So it's Bereshit. Uh, in the beginning, Bereshit et Elohim. <laughs> I'm trying to do it from memory. But one thing you can do is say this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth from the macro to the very specific. In the first sentence of Genesis, we have in the beginning, God created everything and then it zooms in on just the planet Earth real fast. 
Nowhere in Genesis 1 does it say that the Bible thinks the earth is the center of the universe. Uh Uh-oh. That's actually a carryover from Greek uh, cosmology that was then blamed on the Christians, which actually the Christians did take up. But the church did course correct and say, actually, well, we'll get to that later. (laughs) Okay. But in Genesis 1, we have God created the heavens and the earth. And in mythic poetic language, we've got comments or symbolism or archetypes talking about light and darkness and chaos. And what's opposite of chaos? Cosmos. Those two words are opposite of each other. Water and creativeness and rhythm and rest. You see, Genesis 1 is setting up all of these large looming concepts that will be used throughout the remainder of the Bible. And in fact, you could say that the Bible is hyperlinked where it has uh, like website links back and forth. Genesis 1 links to so many other passages in the Bible that it's bewildering how often Genesis 1 is re-referenced in the Hebrew scriptures but also the Greek New Testament. But there's a lot of things to be said about how we read Genesis 1. For me, it's a grounding, mythic, poetic hymn, I guess you could say, that sets up these dualisms of land and sea or land and sky and birds of the ground i mean birds of the air and animals of the ground and there's also a, a sense of creativeness that i think is overlooked a lot of times people will read the bible and think that god created everything well nahum ward lev who's a rabbi i think out in colorado i read a book of his about genesis and it said in reality god set up the environment and then he told the earth, bring forth what you can. And he told this, the sea, bring forth what you can. And the sky, bring forth what you can. And that's fascinating because actually it's like God set up the environment and then he let the environment bring forth things. And then it makes almost more sense for God to be like, ooh, that's good. Ooh, that thing over there is good. Ooh, that's good. We have this increase over and over and over Um where God seems always pleasantly surprised by what the universe is bringing forward, what the cosmos is bringing forward. You see what I mean? How we read Genesis actually very much is important. What I like about that reading from Nahum Ward-Lev is that God gives creative mm, capacity to the environment, to the cosmos. It's like, okay. I'm not going to tell you exactly what to be, but you bring forth what you can. You bring forth what you can. And so not only do we have God creating things, but we also have God giving autonomy to the environment and telling it to bring forth what it can in its own creativeness. Oh, we're just unlocking it. I mean, we're just getting started. But Genesis, I think, is mostly misunderstood because we've forgotten as a culture how to understand mythic poetry. And I think, in some sense, 
we read these passages for what the, we want them to be rather than letting them be what they are and reading them in that way. My brother is uh, is brilliant. He's got two master's degrees. Um, but they're talking about, or well, his degrees are talking about how science and faith are often brought together, which is really quite interesting. And the scientific worldview is often seen as in contradiction to Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 1 or 1 through 3 or even 1 through 11. But that that dissonance or that disconnect only happens when you approach the Bible and you tell it what to be. In science, there's this principle of you have to let the thing you're studying tell you how to study it. So, for instance, if you were to study a rock, you have to let the rock tell you how to study it. You can't approach a rock and try to treat it like it's water. Or, for instance, you can't try to study water as if it's a grasshopper. You can't study a grasshopper like how you might the wind. And you can't study the wind quite like how you might study subatomic particles. And so you always have to let the thing tell you how you should read it, how you should interpret it, how you should study it. But when we approach the Bible or other things in life and we tell it how we will interpret it, then it's so easy to miss the point. And I think that's exactly what happens with the Genesis poem. A lot of us were taught to approach the Genesis poem with our own idea of how we would study it rather than letting it tell us how we should study it. And if it's a great masterful theopoetic poem, then maybe we should read it as a great masterful theopoetic poem. You see? Um, but the Genesis poem is actually just trying to lay down the, the conceptual framework that the rest of the Bible stands on. It's not trying to be scientific, yet so many people miss the point and think that it is, or they try to make it as if it is. But the people that wrote it, they had their own view of the world, and then we have our own. And so let's, let's talk about that. So we've already talked about Genesis 1 being a mythic poem. We've already talked about how we have to let it tell us how to study it. We can't go in guns blazing and tell it how we will interpret it we'll miss the point if we do that we've already chatted about how it sets up uh in the beginning we're already talking about archetypal stuff beginning or at the top or the head of things we are already we've already commented that it sets up archetypal things light and dark cosmos and chaos all of these things it's really setting up a big stage for the theodrama of the Bible to unfold. But here we go. This is kind of the thing I wanted to get towards. A long time ago, humanity had a very different understanding of the cosmos around it. They didn't have telescopes. They didn't have microscopes. So they look at things differently than we do. But at the beginning of things, humanity, when we became self-reflective, we started 
to notice the grandeur of standing on top of mountains. Absolutely. If you've ever stood on a mountain, especially at sunrise or sunset, um, it's just gorgeous. Especially if it's a beautiful view that has like a lake in the distance and it just reflects the sky. But there, there came to be a transcendence with elevation. And so if the gods are above, you'd want to go to the mountains because that gets you closer to where the gods are. Makes sense for early archaic man. But that meant that mountains were often understood as holy places. And in every culture of the world, I think it's Mircea Eliade, he talks about it in The Sacred and the Profane. Every culture has its own understanding of the axis mundi. And that's Latin for uh, the axis of the world. That the whole world turns around this focal point. And so for a lot of early archaic man, the world spun around the holy mountain, whatever your holy mountain was. And above you was the heavens, and you're on earth with the holy mountain. Ah. See, that's good. But then as, as we started to travel, as the human species started to go across the world more and more, we started noticing that there's multiple mountains and even mountain ranges. And so we also kind of started to realize, wait a second, the earth doesn't circle on an axis around this mountain or maybe that mountain, but you know what? Our tribes are going to fight about it. My tribe says my mountain's better. Your tribe says your mountain is better. And now we have to fight to the death to let the world know whose mountain is the holiest mountain. Ugh, you see? Okay. But then we started to have a, a different worldview. It's like, okay, maybe the world doesn't spin around a mountain. Maybe the, the world is the center of things and the heavens are circling around the earth. And so this was the shift from the axis mundi, or let's say mountain-centric, to the geocentric, the global. The heavens are spinning around the earth. And from the perspective of people, as we started to realize that the earth is a globe, it makes sense. You're like, oh, okay. It does look like the heavens are circling around us. So that was the shift from mountain-centric to geocentric. But then... We started watching the skies more diligently and more closely. And then we realized that the earth maybe isn't the center of everything. It's not a geocentric cosmos. It's a heliocentric cosmos. Wait a second. We circle around the sun. And that caused its own mini revolution from being mountain centric to geocentric to all of a sudden being uh, heliocentric. Like what is going on? What we had there though, from the shift from geocentric to heliocentric was really disorienting for especially religious folk because it all of a sudden felt as though we were no longer at the center of the universe. And so what happened with the heliocentric turn and understanding of the cosmos is maybe we're not that important because the 
guess what? The universe doesn't circle around us. See what I mean? And so all of a sudden, our cosmology started to butt up against our religious framework that said that we are important. We are carriers of the imago Dei. We are image bearers of the divine imprint, fingerprint, footprint, soul print. And so are we? Are we actually important in the universe? Because the universe isn't circling around us anymore. So you can kind of hear that. But we've also come to find out that our universes are spinning around their own axis of millions of billions of other universes. And then you put that all together into the cosmos and you're like, oh my goodness. And cosmos just means organized universe. You start to realize, my goodness, what's going on here? And of course, we have the last, or let's not say last, let's say the most recent paradigm shifting thought was that the Big Bang started it all, which by the way, was invented as an idea by a Catholic scientist, theologian, and priest who invented the phrase Big Bang. So congratulations, science, you're standing on the shoulders of religious folk who coined the term Big Bang. So, but what ended up happening there is, okay, all the universe came from a single point of singularity that exploded with all of the mass and matter that created everything in the beginning. Barosh Elohim. When that happened, there's something that interesting happened. Because in a universe that's constantly expanding in every direction, get this, everywhere is now the center of the universe. Because everything's moving away from each other in an expanding, blossoming universe. And so as a result, there is no center everywhere because the center is everywhere. And as I've come to understand it, there's a theologian from the 1200s, Bonaventure, who talks about how God is a circle whose circumference is nowhere, but center is everywhere. But throughout all of this, from shifting from a mountain-centric to geocentric to heliocentric to expanding universe, we've always had this Genesis poem. And it's caused some some conflict and dissonance back and forth because each shift we've had to stop and and rethink how are we supposed to understand this chapter genesis 1 what are we supposed to do with this now but you know what in the midst of also finding out that the universe is still expanding i agree that i think that it's still evolving right there are still stars being born. There are still supernovas happening. There, yes, we might be losing certain species on Earth, but new ones are evolving, maybe slowly, maybe more quickly than others, but new life is still happening. And so what we ended up coming up to, get this, the universe is still moving forward. And ready? Ready? This is it. We have now come to realize that the universe 
is like an environment that's still bringing forth what it can. Does that not sound like a echo back to what Genesis 1 has been saying this whole time? That God created the environment and then told the environment, bring forth what you can. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's good. You see what I mean? So this Genesis poem, I think it's still unlocking. And I think we're still trying to understand it. And of course, we're always going to have people that are going to want to misread it. Um, but you know what? A part of this whole thing of the journey of faith is learning how to read these scriptures in a way that helps us, that spurs us on. St. Augustine would go around and visit other churches and be horrified at what was being preached. But at the end of the day, he's like, but if it's helping people want to love God and love themselves and love their neighbor more, I can't be against that. That's at least the bottom line. So however you're reading the Genesis 1 poem, if you're reading it in such a way that doesn't lead you to greater wonder or love of God or neighbor or self, if it doesn't lead you to have more mystery and awe towards the unfolding and blossoming of creation, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> but so many people want to discredit it. But what they do, oh, when people shove away these theopoetic, mythic, archetypal things, these scriptures, what ends up happening is we end up also jettisoning. Jettisoning? Is that the word? Kicking out these really helpful terms and frameworks about light and dark and chaos and cosmos and creativity and evolution and blossoming and bringing forth what you can and trying to make sure that what you are trying to bring forward is good. We do away with this idea of rhythm then. And then we just become workaholics because then the bottom line is about productivity and it's not about taking a step back at least once a day and be like, oh man, that was good. And that was good. And I'm going to work again tomorrow, but then the day after that, we're going to rest and we're going to really enjoy the whole of everything. But what's really beautiful is um, the Genesis poem. It says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then when humanity is capstoned, God says, it is very good. In Hebrew, it's tov, 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 and then tov meod, which means strongly good or very good is how we often translate it. But God looks at creation and he doesn't say this is terrible. We just need to torch it all and start over. No, it's more like, oh, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. And then God even makes a special day. And then he goes one step further than just it is very good. And then he puts the capstone on it and says, let's also have some sacred time. And he says, and it is holy. So it is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Now it's holy. When we jettison this book or these scriptures, we do away with calling things good sometimes, 
We can do away with calling humanity very good. We can do away with creativity or the affirmation of it. And we even do away with potentially just the concept of holy, which we should maybe have uh, a whole episode one point about defining holy or holiness or hagias or all of these words. So let's let's wrap this up, okay? So we've, we've kind of covered uh, the Genesis 1 poem sets the stage for everything that happens in the, in the rest of the Bible. It's hyperlinked all over. There's internal references in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek New Testament back towards this very chapter. It reads to me like a poem or like a hymn. It seems to be setting up archetypal language that will be referenced and used, but also as we've come to have more and more sophisticated understandings of the Bible, I mean, of the universe, of having these shifts, and they were radical shifts from axis mundi to geocentric to heliocentric to expanding an evolutive universe, we've always had to come back and re-understand this chapter. And most often, I would bet, we've come back and back and back and back to realizing that this is supposed to be a grounding poem for our lives. It's not necessarily supposed to be scientific, and it doesn't need to be. But it's totally appropriate to treat it as though it is a grounding hymn for our lives, through which we can use as a lens to interpret other things that are happening in our lives. So wherever you find yourself on your path, maybe you've been confused about the book of Genesis, especially chapter one. Maybe you've been fighting with the the incongruity, it seems, of the poem that's found there and then modern science, which is really just the latest science. We're always going to be having more and more sophisticated theories of the universe. I'm sure that there's a new theory that will come forth in the next 300 years anyways. But let's do this. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And maybe this whole episode is really just about, let's let Genesis 1 tell us how to interpret it. Let's not go to it and tell it what it needs to be or should be, but just read it for what it is. And then maybe come to realize maybe this chapter has got some, some really beautiful wisdom and maybe some really beautiful ways of thinking about the universe that we could still learn from. So this has been deconstruction part four, the Genesis poem and you may you have a lovely day. Find me on Twitter. I've actually been using it way more. It's a lot more fun. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you later. Grace and peace.